skips and skipperettes from all across the vast electronic wasteland known only as Internet Land. And welcome back to Tales from the Jungle Cruise. You know, this podcast is, is a strange thing. You know, in five years, it never ceases to amaze me and to bring forward stories and people who help flesh out the whole identity of, of both the Jungle Cruise and of Disneyland. You know, for every skip I've been able to get onto the show, there's probably two I've tried to reach, and it just hasn't worked out. And then there are sometimes skips who are just really hard to connect with. Now, I've been working hard to get this week's skipper lined up for nearly three years now. Uh, To put that another way, there were 45 more main characters that were still alive in Game of Thrones when I first started to try to get Skipper Larry Camel on the podcast. That's right, everyone. Skipper Larry Camel joins us this week on the podcast, uh, a decade or more at the parks, uh, an influential lead and a trainer, and he shares his experiences with us. And boy, are they doozies. Uh, I can genuinely say that this was totally worth the wait. Uh, Larry is is an amazing character, uh, both uh, now and in the history of, of Disneyland. We've got tons going on, as usual, so join us over on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash junglecruise, C-R-E-W-S, for updates on our new card game that's going to be uh, kickstartering, we think September is uh, is the timeline we're hoping for, uh, jungle history and photos from our skipperette uh, Jen, as always, and it's a wonderful home on the web for skippers and lovers of the Jungle Cruise. All right, here we go, everyone. Season 5, Episode 20, as we present the first half of our interview with Skipper Larry Camel in an episode we like to call Swimming Against the River, Part 1. Kungaloosh, everyone. The Tales from the Jungle Cruise podcast is an oral history of the Jungle Cruise skippers who have worked at the Jungle Cruise attraction at the Disney Parks from 1955 to today. It is not endorsed, affiliated, sanctioned, acknowledged, blessed, funded, or approved of by the Disney Company. Any opinions expressed are the opinions of the host and guests, and do not represent in any way the Disney Company or the Illuminati. Wait, who are we kidding? They're the same thing, right? We're doing uh, Greece, Italy, Switzerland, and France. If you're going, I mean, the, the cost yeah. of it is the, the travel, so we um, cash in some frequent flyer mileage and, uh, you know, definitely... Definitely is going to be a fun trip. Let I me mean, have you just say anything. It's fun just to check the... We are going to Europe in July. Where are you going? Uh, we're flying into Venice. Mm-hmm. Four days in Venice, then we're jumping on a cruise ship, going through Greek Isles and up to mm-hmm. Istanbul, yep. and back through the Greek Isles of Venice again, and then we're spending four days in Zurich. Mm-hmm. As, Sounds uh, like we have a lot of overlap. Four years ago, we hosted a foreign exchange student from mm-hmm. Switzerland, mm-hmm. and so we're going to meet up with her and her family oh, and perfect. spend some time there and let them be tour guides. Mm-hmm. We're doing um, Santorini, and uh, Santorini. Right now, the the exchange rate is so favorable. Um, sure, that's what I'm tinting. Um, so yeah, we got a Airbnb, uh, sixty bucks a night that has a private infinity pool that mm-hmm. overlooks the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's going to be an amazing uh, trip. And then we do Athens, Rome. We rented a, a winery in Florence on Airbnb. Uh, not Florence. Um, uh, Tuscany in uh, I guess South Florence. Mm-hmm. So um, right in the Chianti region. 
and then we go up to Verona, where we're going to see an Italian opera in a 2,500-year-old amphitheater with 30,000 Italians. So that that's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And then Geneva for her conference, and then 10 days in Paris. So right up in La Marais, right up off the uh, six, eight blocks north of Notre Dame. So it's yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, we've got a great view of the city, and it's exciting. My first Europe trip. I'm looking forward to... We're, my wife laughed at me because I'm like, well, we're going to be over there, so I have to go to Disney Paris. And she was like, <laughs> wait, it's your first trip to Europe. We're spending thousands of dollars, and you want to go to Disney. And I'm like, well, we're going to be there. <laughs> yeah, we might as well. But they have, you know, they have great things other than not having a jungle cruise. I'll forgive them for that. I, I, uh, I guess the climate did not suit having a, a water ride like that with as much snow as they get during their their winter season so yes this has been a long time coming i think that we my i first threw this to you at the the um get together two years ago and it's been like eight months since so like almost three years ago was that very first one right um as i've had people on from your generation skipper larry camel um you know, the Laura Huffs and Sue Barnabys and Tim Meltrigers and Chris Lamberths and, you know, people who worked with you from day one of doing this, you were the first name that came up. Maybe you and Don Chapman, as far as everyone who said, if there's, if there's a person who has a story about jungle, not only is it a great story, but he can tell it better than anyone else. And I, over five years of doing this now, it was consistent. Everyone who I talked to who worked with you said that um, you were the keeper of the flame when it came to uh, not only the jungle knowledge and the things that were happening, but also of, of the passion in that era that, that you were um, a, right. a bright flame. Is that other than being uh, gratuitously and obscenely uh, flattering on their part? <laughs> um, does that come close to to uh, the way you feel about it? Well, I consider myself a humble man, so I'm not sure I would uh, <laughs> blow my horn quite that much. But uh, yeah, it's that's why it's good uh, to have friends to blow your horn for. You. Yeah, um, it's, it's it's definitely uh, one of the high points of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I look back on my time on JC with a lot of fondness, and the friends that I made there. Um, it's a it's a great way to you know, strike a conversation yeah. at you know parties and things like that. Hey, I used to work in the Jungle Cruise and mm-hmm. instant uh, conversation starter. Um, and I uh, maybe one of these days when I'm retired and don't need to worry about money, I might go back again and yeah. try my hand at uh, what's left of the Jungle yeah. Cruise. You know, but it's the the things that I've learned in doing this. I've, we've interviewed people from. Uh, 1955. We had two skippers who were first day, um, one of which who ended up, you know, becoming uh, the operating manager for Magic Kingdom the day it opened. I mean, we there's some real, you know, skippers have had a great role in in the park's evolutions, um, and you know, people during the, the 60s and 70s and 80s. And the thing that I've found is, um, regardless of the era, it changes in ways that make it impossible to come back with the same. Perception. You have to be at a different place right. in your life yeah. and see it in a different way. Um, but I guess let's, let's roll the time machine back. We'll, we'll get onto that. So, but when, when did you uh, start working for the company? What what brought you to Disney? 
I hired Ann on May 1st, 1985, mm-hmm. and uh, the way that I ended up there was uh, I had a roommate in, high, in college, mm-hmm. uh, Brad Yates was his name, who worked on the Explorer Canoes, and uh, I was looking for some sort of a summer job. This was between my junior and senior year at UC Irvine, mm-hmm. and he said, uh, well, I'm going to try Disneyland there. I was looking for college students who can just work there during summer time and spring break, um, and so I applied and uh, ended up in uh, Adventureland for uh, Attractions. And I had a, a friend of mine who uh, I was doing some theater with. I was a theater major at UC Irvine. Um, he was also working there and said, oh, you're on Jungle Cruise. Mm-hmm. And I said, how do you know? And he said, well, because I'm on Jungle Cruise, too. So we got to be fast friends. Uh, I was uh, trained by Jerry Whitfield mm-hmm. and uh, was there for that summer and stayed seasonal mm-hmm. to the next year. And then I graduated college and... Being a theater arts major, um, you know, job prospects, what they were, I decided to kind of uh, stay on and became a trainer fairly quickly, and I was a lead by the following summer, the summer of 87, um, and was there all through the Paul Collier era, the Don Chapman era, and then through Narrations Attractions, mm-hmm. and uh, I left on August 20th, 1996, mm-hmm. and that is a day we'll that will live in infamy. Um that's a great tease. We'll we'll, we'll we'll talk about that, of course. Jerry actually did uh, came on the show, and uh, him and Jim Vest took some time, and we had a really interesting sit down um, at uh, Tom Meslovich's place, and it was um, pretty much the uh, the group of people. You know, it was um, Dave Champagne and uh, Sue and Shada, and I mean, it just. Probably 25, 30 people from that era sat down. They just have their, every year they have a little barbecue. And um, I got to see the Jungle Cruise movie mm-hmm. uh, pretty much in its mm-hmm. entirety. Uh, there actually is one clip of Jerry that's floating around on YouTube. A fairly, there's there's the, the Jerry clip and then there's the uh, uh, attacking the hippo with the rubber knife clip is, mm-hmm. is also on mm-hmm. uh, on YouTube somewhere. Um, so yeah, no, so we, we had a great time. I, I really like Jerry. He's, he's, uh, He's he's a cool cool guy. Yeah. Um, so when you you go in having theater background, right. um, I'm assuming high school. You know, mm-hmm. you don't go into the college side without having got the bug fairly early. Right. Um, did you immediately see the crossover between what you could do at Disney and your theater background? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think you might be able to divide Jungle Cruise Skippers into two categories. The people that are there because they're getting paid to be there, and they are um, they have their spiel, and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. And people who um, really kind of embrace the spirit of the Jungle Cruise. And like for me, when you know I have guests coming on my boat, throw out a couple little trial jokes to see what they laughed at, and then I you know, tailor my spiel. Mm-hmm. I can be really physical with it. I can be you know hit the puns hard. Um, so I saw it as a, as really a, a challenge as an actor mm-hmm. that you know I'm doing 30 shows a day and I get a different audience each time and each one of those audiences that comes on my boat um, they paid the same amount of money to get in so they deserve to to be entertained mm-hmm. and not just talked to. Yeah. Yeah. Now with with that longevity of time, mm-hmm. you know that because I, I actually think that on the jungle side too, you you get people who are sub two years. Some people do it one or two summers, and then there's that break where people then become eight, ten. You know, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that mid category. Mm-hmm. When you look at the the end of the career, it's either two years or ten, fifteen. I mean, there's that big yeah. jump. Was there ever um, a temptation to move into entertainment, or I mean, did you did you ever see anything else 
in the structure of the park and go, yeah, I want to do that? Or was it just the only thing that really matters is jungle? Um, I had you know thought about maybe getting entertainment and doing the shows and, and parades and things like that. But uh, there was just something about the Jungle Cruise, that kind of immediacy. I mean, you have that, your audience, like, right there in front of you. Um, and you, if you have a bad crowd, then you only have to deal with them for eight minutes. And then you can, you know, change them in for another one. Um, and and so that, that kind of flexibility really mm-hmm. appealed to me sure. in Jungle Cruise. Um, so, I yes, I consider getting into entertainment, and, but um, not to the point where I actually pursued it yeah well i mean of course everyone gets other attractions did you know like you know columbia and yeah yeah columbia um you know if, if i was given a choice of uh, a shift i'd always take jungle cruise and right behind that was columbia because yeah. you know it's a big huge giant jungle cruise boat yeah. except instead of doing a monologue you're doing a scene mm-hmm. with somebody else anytime anybody else would you know you get a different captain or your hawkeye then you got a whole different routine that you you throw out there mm-hmm. so yeah, it's one of those. Uh, that I think that had already. It was hard. It was, but when I was there, it was really hard to get onto boats. I mean, boats were, you know, higher seniority and really pinned down. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people I talked to. I mean, it was, seemed like it was a pretty. Um, like a lot of people got cross trained in the the late eighties, early nineties, because almost everyone I've talked to had knowledge there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seemed like they. I mean, there wasn't probably a lot of investment in time to get them up and running on the Twain, I would assume, compared to a coaster or something. So, right, yeah. Uh, so, I'm sorry. So, other than Big Boats and Jungle, did you know any, anything else on it? Yeah, all, all the attractions in Adventureland, in Frontierland, um, most of the attractions in Fantasyland, mm-hmm. I got trained on. I got trained on subs, even though I never actually worked a shift over there after training. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. So, those were the attractions I had in my belt, but... Probably a good 80, 85% of my shifts were yeah. JC. Yeah. Well, you know, I definitely, I know that they, I mean, they weren't, the, the people who got it, the people who were on and who were going to play mostly by the rules, it seemed like they were pretty content keeping them at Jungle as much as possible mm-hmm. uh, because there were so many people who were, uh, you know, that got the training and then didn't jump into it. I mean, you know, yeah. when you had the people who loved it, they, I think even to today, the people who are are devoted, they keep um, working on the attraction as much as possible. So, um, what was uh, coming out of the theater? What was the the feel for you during the training? Did you? Because um, it's funny because we talked to a lot of people who go into jungle and then come out to theater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that point, you already have some experience. Did you feel adequately trained? Did you Did you feel like you know? Uh, did it feel like theater at the start to you, or did it feel like, I'll make this theater? It, it felt like a summer job. Yeah. Um, and, of course, uh, Jerry Whitfield, um, awesome trainer, awesome lead, and very enthusiastic about it, and very, you know, uh, realistic kind mm-hmm. of uh, approach to, you know, the, this is really, you know, what you're going to be dealing with. Sure. I, I believe kind of saw it just as a summer job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I realized I was probably going to uh, be there for a while, especially when I made trainer and lead, mm-hmm. um, it became more like, how can I kind of own this yeah. and, and make it uh, something that I, I love, that I can put passion into? Yeah. Well, and that was just hitting the era of the Disney afternoon stuff was just coming online at that point. It was just the start of the Eisner era. Yes. Um, and I know that there were a lot of, of changes in tone 
when you were hitting like 87, 88 was really when, did you see a shift when the, the company started getting more, um, in the public eye and media started being a little bit different? Cause that was, you know, the expansion of cable, uh, the Disney uh, channel had just started up at that point, mm-hmm. you know, Disney afternoon. I mean, did you see during your early days that the park really was expanding and growing or did it, not did from it my perspective because yeah. yeah, with the kind of like the splash mountain opening and, and yeah. you know, they really see, that was when Disney was making that turn in the park attendance really started jumping up. Mm-hmm. So, because I know, you know, early 80s was kind of a dead zone. That was when things were really rough. So. Yeah, yeah. And the, the strike mm-hmm. uh, really kind of put a wedge between yeah. the ride operators and management and stuff. So I, was, I came in like right after that. So there was still a lot of healing that was being yeah. done yeah. when I came in. Um, but now I don't recall any sort of feeling like, hey, you know, Disney's really starting to take off. Mm-hmm. Because well, Disney stores were just starting to open, and yeah. it was you know it was when they got their toehold in the the consumer mentality, um, which for good or bad, a lot of people say that was also when things started going downhill. Because mm-hmm. um, you know there was there was Little Mermaid in '89 and things like that. So um, so when you stepped into the role on the on the trainer side of things, mm-hmm. um, was it? What did you take from your your theater experience and from working with you know uh, the acting side of thing? How did you how did you turn that into the trainer side of things? Because it was something that I um, one of the, the stories that I'd heard, and I'm trying to think of who who particularly said it, um, but that you were very um, uh, very show oriented. That you when your training was really about you know putting putting an amazing show on the boat. Right. Um, do you think that was because of the the acting background? I would assume. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, how did, did that manifest for you? I mean, is, was it a particular like mindset that you had going into that? Um, like I said, it's you know, I, I saw each group of people that came on my boat as a challenge. Right. You know, what are these people going to respond to? How am I going to make this um, a meaningful experience for them? And mm-hmm. um, like my, I loved Japanese tour groups. Love Japanese tour groups mm-hmm. because you know even though they you know they didn't really understand what you were saying, right. you then your challenge came to be okay. So how can I make this exciting for them mm-hmm. if I can't use the meaning of the words? Well, I'm right. going to use how I say them instead. Mm-hmm. So this is where the acting comes in, and you know sometimes you talk really slow and softly, and then you start yelling, and then uh, you found out very quickly that Japanese uh, tour groups do not like to get wet. So when the squirter comes up the second time, you just start screaming. Just start screaming. And kids, people diving behind each other, and mom, mothers taking their kids and holding them up as shields so they don't get wet. And of course, you know, swinging around Schweitzer Falls. Um, that was uh, some of my, my best crews were the ones that didn't understand anything that I, I said. Um. No, and I, I loved I loved Japanese tour groups. I mean, I like anyone who was there. You know, it, it it was always a challenge. I came out of theater as well. Mm-hmm. You know, a high school theater, college level. I taught improv up and down the coast for about three years. So that was my my history too. Was coming out of the theater scene. Sorry, theater scene. Um, what were I mean the I'm trying to think of the era. Who was John Collier was the kind of alien at that point, right? The late eighties. Paul Collier was. Sorry, Paul yeah, Collier. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So he was a lead. Yeah, it would have been. 
Yeah. We haven't we haven't talked about I mean I talked a little bit more off microphone about him. What was I mean, what was he like working with? Um, you know, great guy, really uh, kind of quiet, kind of laid back sort of guy, but you know, real straightforward guy and very mm-hmm. fair and, and you can tell that he was um, looking out for you. He, you know, he had your back. So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, there's always the fight with Disney, where it's always the the cast always feels that management is on a different plane. Um, in the time that you were there, that ten years, did you mm-hmm. see waves of where management would loosen up and tighten up? And I mean, you know, what was, you know, was there a reflection of that on the ride? Um, the you know, there's always going to be some uh, when you have you know, the the supervisors and assistant supervisors and they all have their own personalities and then there's ones that you really don't care for and ones that you think are are great as far as kind of you know a, was there like a time period where it was butting heads with management yeah. not that I not that I remember I mean we had a couple of you know supervisors and stuff that came through that would that were um, I guess didn't really see the Jungle Cruise uh, for what it could be yeah um, but for you know, for the most part, you know, management was was you know pretty cool. Yeah, I, I talked to Jesse Banda a little bit about narrations, mm-hmm. um, and he had said that you were uh, involved at, at you know the whole start of the, yes. the thing. I mean, what was I guess for the people who haven't you know read um, uh, you know the the Dave Koenig's books and talking about narrations or or heard us talk about it? I mean, give a little summary about what the program was. Um, yeah, so this would have been the early '90s when they, um, uh, when Paul Presler took over, mm-hmm. um, and he, you know, coming from the Disney stores, had kind of a different mentality about how things should run, and so he thought instead of dividing up the park by area, it should be by type of attraction, mm-hmm. and uh, so the kind of uh, flagship of that, the kind of experimental one, was Narrations Attractions, Narrations Attractions Department ADD, mm-hmm. Go Nad Go, right? So uh, now it was Jungle Cruise, uh, Storybook Land, Circle Vision, mm-hmm. uh, and they threw a Tiki Room in there too. Mm-hmm. And also at that time was when Toy Story was out. They had the kind of a Toy Story interactive adventure that was oh, okay. uh, up by where the Space Mountain, mm-hmm. the, 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 the area. Yeah. Um, and so those were the attractions, and they 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 approached. Uh, each attraction saying, you know, we need like two people from each of these rides to basically just hole up for a couple of weeks and throw out the SOP and come up with, you know, how you're going to make this an experience for sure. the guests. And instead of just a ride, it should be, you know, kind of an all-encompassing experience. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, chosen along with uh, Paul Hersick. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I, we, you know, we tore up the spiel. And that's when the theater really started kicking in. Yeah. Because we, you know, we developed characters. Mm-hmm. So instead of being uh, the narrator of the ride, you became a part of the experience of the sure, ride, and sure. you were, um, you know, uh, a character right out of the African Queen mm-hmm. or out of an Indiana Jones movie, and you played that part for the for for your guests. And even uh, you know, Paul and I would uh, we just you know, walk through the queue area mm-hmm. and we just interact with the guests in character. Sure. And it was 1938, mm-hmm. and we were out in the middle of the jungle. And when we asked people where they were from, and they'd say, "Oh, we're from California," like, "Oh, you know, do you know any? Do you know Clark Gable? Do you know any movie stars?" So we tried to make it really kind of an immersive sure. experience. Um, and, and, that, and that was before the. Um, it was still the old boathouse at that point, right? No, th- this so was, that was after. That was right. after. So that was after the indie 
the refit with the new boathouse and the, the right. Indiana Jones construction mm-hmm. and all. So that. yeah, and it was I, I think a lot of it was you know we have a new highly themed queue yeah. area. Yeah. That's right when they had finished switching over all the boats from mm-hmm. the old, you know, blue and white, Small green and white striped canopies to mm-hmm. the, you know, the beat up looking boats. So they've got the jungle. We've rethemed the queue. We've rethemed the boats. What's left to rethink? We need to rethink the skippers. Mm-hmm. And and like I said, make it less of a narrator and more of a of a character right. from from this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that lasted for. Uh, a little while, um, they they got management got a little concerned when numbers started to drop. Mm-hmm. I mean, we didn't get as many people through the turnstile because we took our time and interacted with the guests and had it made an experience. Um, and so a lot of it was, you know, well, we we got to stop doing this because it's slowing us down. Sure. We got to stop doing this, and so a lot of that it kind of went out the window. But um, but there was also costuming. I mean, people mm-hmm. were allowed to to theme their costumes. Yeah create a deeper character. I know that uh, one of the people was a butterfly enthusiast, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but everyone ha- was able to, uh, to, to bring a little something different, but was at that point, was it still a limited pool? Did it ever get out of being a smaller pool of people um, for jungle? Because I was always unclear about whether it ever got to a point where like, you know, most of the cast was involved or whether it was still a small number of people who were kind of trying it out. It was. They had kind of their um, their hand selected group of you know forty fifty cast members mm-hmm. who were who started off you know being retrained on the jungle cruise mm-hmm. um, in kind of the, the the new SOP and eventually when you know we got things got up and running then you know other people came in and were either retrained or trained on sure. the attraction. Sure. Um, yeah, and there was a, a lot of uh, creativity that came out of that as well. That I. Like I, there were five different characters that I developed to play, and I kind of you know cycled them through, mm-hmm. and, and depending on which you know, what kind of people I got on my boat, then that's sure. who what character I would play. Mm-hmm. Um, was there involvement with the entertainment department? Did they yeah. also so they they because what I've always heard is that they part of the reason why it was nixed was because the entertainment department was a little hostile. That's correct. To the concept. Yeah, they thought that that we were kind of. Stepping into their territory, sure. maybe you know, cr- crossing union lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, it got dialed back a little bit. I, I don't think we, you know, we ever went out and pretended like we were, you know, like the entertainment department or anything. Right. We just, you know, we had our little corner of Adventureland. Mm-hmm. And, well, and and look, I've I've said from a month into working there that it always amazes me that you have a an attraction that you bring in primarily eighteen, nineteen, twenty year old kids. And throw them in in a three-day training to a point where they are doing something that should be uh, trained as entertainment. Yes, you know I've yeah. I've never understood why there's not um, I want to say comedy lessons, but you know some kind of workshopping mm-hmm. to to bring people to the next level on the ride. Because you look at the Adventures Club in Orlando, and right. you look at how immersively themed that was, and you know the best. Uh, Example I can give is the people who had gone to the Adventurers Club. Narrations was really uh, a genesis for that um, because that was the kind of character, you know, driven story that right. was that was being created. Yeah. What were some of the, the characters, whether it's yours or other people's? Like, what were some of the backstories that were memorable to you that that you remember that people put together? Um, a lot of the characters that Paul and I created were kind of riffed off of uh, went into what was called the Jungle Cruise Survival Guide. So that if you were trained or retrained on that ride, it, mm-hmm. you had some examples of some characters you might play, or you could you know use that inspiration and put your own little spin on it, or come up with your character your own. Mm-hmm. But some of them were uh, for the men, were um, 
kind of like you know the the cocky Han Solo type, and you know, out there you know just driving into danger and mm-hmm. putting his crew in danger. Um, there was um, uh, one of the ones I played was uh, the Jungle Cruise accountant, mm-hmm. who had no knowledge of how to run boats, and he was you know they were shorthanded, so they just threw him in a boat and said, "Here, follow this map," mm-hmm. and so he keeps getting lost. Um, there was uh, for the the women. There was um, uh, a nurse mm-hmm. character who had you know going around in the jungle and taking care of you know the the natives as part of Red Cross sort of thing. Um, or there was uh, the one of the characters was the daughter of a jungle cruise skipper, and she had kind of been raised in that area, and so she was kind of you know trying to stake her claim in a man's world, and was mm-hmm. always kind of looked down upon by the men. Mm-hmm. Well, and I guess that. That segues into something we should talk about too, which mm-hmm. the overlap of this is also the the dawn of Subi and um, mm-hmm. you know of Laura and the ladies who had joined right. the jungle for the first time because mm-hmm. that you know that was when that was happening. Yes. Um, was actually I guess I should say on the overlap was that slightly before narrations or yes. was it right in the middle of the was just a little bit before was when that was coming on. Yeah. What was what was your viewpoint? Because I don't think I've talked to a lot of people who were in trainer-ish roles at that point of of um, the ladies coming into the jungle and, and for the first time. What was the perception? What was the you know the energy about it at the time? And uh, you can in be general, or in general, or for me personally, you know what? Both. It's a good time to put down the history of it. So. Uh, I, I know not everyone was enthused. I mean, there was there was a lot of resistance. There was a lot of resistance, and I'll be honest, uh, I was part of that resistance. I didn't really think it was a good idea, just because mm-hmm. um, because of kind of the theatrical aspect of it. Sure. That, that you know, this is going to be a kind of you know Indiana Jonesy, you know Humphrey mm-hmm. Bogart, African Queen sort of feel to the ride. Mm-hmm. That female skippers, you know, how are you going to make that work? Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, especially after Narration's Attraction started, it's like, well, you know, you, you own it. You know, whatever you're going to bring to the ride, you you own it, you get creative. And that, so once um, once the, the women started kind of getting into that kind of creative feel too, then I'm like, yeah, this really works. Yeah. Well, and there was, there was a limited um, group in the 70s. Right. Who, uh, there were... I want to say eight women. I have the, the numbers written down somewhere, but they were they were trained, they were put onto it, and mm-hmm. the, uh, the whole plug was pulled on it right. uh, a month or two into, into going on because it just wasn't the right environment at the time. Mm-hmm. And there was some particular politics that that you know storybook basically was seen as where the ladies were. Right. Um, you know when you saw the now, did you train any of the, the girls the first time through? No. Who was when, when narrations happened uh-huh. and Paul and I kind of took on that training role, the retraining okay. role. Then yes, quite a few, but not initially. Not the not the first batch. Yeah, I need to ask. I need to ask Sue who her. I'm sure she told me who her trainer was, but that's the problem with a hundred hours of content of this is yeah. that my memory is like one of those big gray things with the the big ears and the long nose. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't think of what they're called. Um, the how long did it take before the ladies settled? into it did it take into narrations moving in or was it just at varying levels of of people's acceptance of them being there well you know sue Mm -hmm. and she's not going to do anything (laughs) half-assed so she came in and and she was like you know i'm here deal with it and so you know we we dealt with it yeah and uh 
I'm glad it was Sue who was in that first batch because you know, she's a, a, a real go-getter and she was she's a firecracker. Yeah, yeah. So she, um, yeah, and like I said, she owned it and she she fit yeah. right in. She was part of the, she was a sister in the brotherhood pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah, well, that's the perfect way of describing her. Uh, she was instrumental, uh, I think, of which things I'm not allowed to talk about because I know there's some, th- some stories with her and management that... Uh, but you know, she was instrumental in getting like the the nylon rule removed. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, Jenny, this kind of you know, I don't know if you know this story either. So all of the um, attractions women when they were wearing dresses had to wear full nylons underneath their their costumes or tights. Yeah. Yeah. Well, food and merchandise didn't have to. So. Sue was one of the people who went to the union and basically said, if all of these other people don't have to do it for their jobs, I don't want to. And her exact phrase was to uh, whoever it was that was on that said, look, I'm tired of the yeast infections that come with the jungle cruise. And she just flat out said, you know, this is, this is a health issue. But I mean, she really, um, a lot of the, the women's issues she championed, she was big on, you know the the feminism of Disney. Mm-hmm. She should write a book called The Feminism. Um, but yeah, no, no, she she was not someone who was going to take any crap from anyone. So yeah, I could imagine. Well, and listen, not just her. I mean, there's other people. I want to say Dawn was the other one that she trained with, and then Laura Huff was in the second batch of two that went through. So mm-hmm. uh, the list of Shada, of course. Um, what was as far as the um, the narrations? Um, Impact. I mean, I know that, you know, it was fairly short-lived. Um, you know, do you feel like that it's still, like, some of the jokes, some of the way of doing things? Do you think it, it continued even after the program was not really there because everyone had gotten their beak wet a little bit and knew what they could do? Um, or, or, do or did they crack down the opposite direction and say, basically, once it was over, you guys have to walk away from it? That, 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 was, never, um, that was never said out loud. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as people kind of you know, drifted away from the pure narrations, you know, while I was there, I still tried to, and um, you know, they after a while they said, you know, we can't do the costume thing anymore. Right. You got to wear the costume, um, and so it kind of toned down a little bit. But I still would, you know, mm-hmm. do characters in the boat, yeah. uh, and I was there for you know, a couple years after narrations finally was um, kind of disappeared. But you know, going back now, I've been back several times, and you know, I I don't really see anything yeah. of narrations yeah. there any longer. Well, and it's funny because I um, one of the interviews I did was with the guy in the seventies. I want to say seventy three or seventy four, whose job it was to rewrite the script. Mm-hmm. And he had said that out of the jokes that he had written at that point, he had a full copy of the script. He said he compared it to the modern script. It was still eighty percent, eighty ninety percent. So I'm sure that some of the the humor and jokes and scripting that happened in the narrations time. I mean, there's legacy that, you know, good jokes always stay right. uh, as long as they fit the theme of the ride. Yeah. Um, do you have any, uh, as far as specific, either memories or stories about the times that you were doing narrations that, uh, that stick with you that are content worthy? I mean, you know, that are, I mean, are, are there just things that kind of summed up the experience that you got to do that were, you know, encapsulatable into a, a podcast-friendly story? <laughs> not a, not specifically. I mean, just the the kind of whole feel of, um, you know, that you were part of something special, and mm-hmm. it was this select group of people mm-hmm. that were kind of making this um, 
if you'll pardon the expression, an adventure yeah. for for the guests. Um, you know, a, a really uh, immersible experience. Um, Do you feel like that was part of what Doom did? Was because whenever you make some people feel special, it makes other people feel not special. I mean, do you feel like that backlash of it, that it was the, these guys are doing it and they're being given a toy and we are not allowed to play with the toy, therefore... There was a, a certain vibe along those lines from, from some of the other attractions. Yeah, it was kind of, it, it felt a lot like kind of an us and them yeah. sort of attitude. Because I could imagine Mansion being that way slightly. You know, I think that's probably the one that comes closest to mind, that, you know, they also play a character outside of, you know, just, you know, being in line. Right. Um, you know, and then eventually, you know, interventions and some of the other areas that they were paid entertainment anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's tough whenever you have someone else who's given, uh, even though it doesn't hurt anyone else to have something new being introduced, Mm -hmm. there's always that resentment of, why can't we be special? Why can't we have this attention and money and costuming power and all those things? I think part of that was the selection process of the people who were going to be like that, that startup, because a lot of people that had been in Jungle Cruise for years, and Don Mm -hmm. Chapman's a perfect example of that, they were like, nope, sorry, we don't think you're going to handle, work out well for this, so bye, we're going to put you somewhere else. Yeah. And so and it was it was worded not a whole lot differently than that. Sure. It was like, you know, we don't want you here, sort of thing. Yeah. What was your experience working with Chappie? Oh, I love the guy. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, <laughs> his, his job was to scare the hell out of the, of the new guys. <laughs> so he'd always, you know, he'd have those, those dark glasses on that are, you know, just that side of SOP yeah. and the hat pulled way down and talking. That, I, I, the, I, I heard that they were borderline uh, state trooper glasses. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and I think a lot of times you, you felt like you were, um, that he was the the state trooper coming yeah, in, and yeah. especially well, he was a sheriff before. Yeah. I mean, he he came out of out of the police into mm-hmm. this Disney job, a, a much later part of his life. So I mean, it was uh, I could imagine that there was some intimidation. And you know, when you you know you're pulling your boat up into no man's land, you know, he comes walking over and puts his one foot on the bow of your boat and leans in. It's just like a state trooper who's just pulled you over. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me. Do, do you know how many inches you are away from the boat in front of you? And uh, one of my favorite Don Chapman stories is uh, it was uh, April Fool's Day. Mm-hmm. And I had found this old rusty camera in the bushes. It had obviously been there for a long time. And I said, okay, it's April Fool's Day. What can I do with this camera? There's got to be something I can do. So yeah, I'm thinking, I, I, would, I cleaned it up and everything and just kept it in my pocket. And then uh, fairly late in the day, this is uh, the old queue. Mm-hmm. So the lead's desk was close to load yep. rather than unload like it is now. And um, there was a, a, a family that was sitting at the front right next to me that were you know, having a great time and everything. You're laughing at everything. So when we pulled into unload and they were getting out of the boat, I said, hey, can you, can you do me a favor? Um, I want you to go around and see that guy standing up there. And it was Chappie. Just tell him that you, you left your camera on my boat. That's all you have to do. He said, well, you know, why? What's going on? He said, no, just, just do it. Just do it. So he walks around. And meanwhile, I take the camera and I just set it in the cushion next to me. And uh, I pull up to No Man's Land, and I'm loading my gun like nothing's going on. And this guy leans over and says, hey, excuse me, I think I might have left my camera on that boat. And Chappie kind of looks at the guy and looks at me and comes walking over and says, somebody leave a camera on your boat? And I went, oh, yeah, here. And I reached down and picked it up and handed it to him, and I dropped it in the river. 
And um, then the guy who was the, the guest was up there, figured out what was going on, mm-hmm. and he started starts yelling, "What'd you do to my camera? What'd you, what's going on with my camera?" And, I love when you should buy it. Yeah, and, buy it yeah. is the best thing. And Chappie could have killed me mm-hmm. with his eyes. Yeah, <laughs> I, actually he was, he, I actually think that is not just a figurative statement. He, he probably literally could have. Yeah, and so and I'm looking with this look of terror on my face, and he's about ready to reach in and just rip my throat out. And I just looked at him and went, April Fools, and pulled my boat up. <laughs> we, had, we had a version of that where we would um, we'd get cell phones, uh, you know, old flip phones mm-hmm. uh, would fall in, and we'd use the net and pull them out. And we had a little collection of them floating around, and there was uh, there was a skip who uh, was coming around and was like, "Hey, hey, I think I, I found your phone." And he's like, "What do you mean? How could you have found my phone?" I said, "Is this your phone?" And it looked like the one he had. Is wait, is that my phone? And I threw it to him and intentionally bounced it off the bow of the boat so it skipped past <laughs> and went into the water. And the collective gasp of everyone on the boat was just audible. <laughs> um, and and then. Guest complaints were filed at City Hall, but that's a you know different story. I have heard, and I I uh, not trying to feed the ego a little bit. I have heard that you were a bit of a trickster. Uh, um, that there was a bit of a reputation that you have for uh, for uh, tomfoolery, shall we say? Um, um, I think there were quite a few toms that were fooled yes. while on my ship. I remember um, when the Indiana Jones key was being built, um, and of course that was. Uh, pretty much kind of cut off the connection between the Jungle Cruise and the deck. Mm-hmm. But while the India was being built, um, you could still kind of, you know, sneak in there and cut through. Uh, and Paul Herzik and I um, were heading down the deck one time. We was, you know, the the area was fairly well completed at that point in time. We were just kind of mm-hmm. looking around seeing, you know, what was up. And there's one little scene there where it's kind of, there's a break in the wall and there's kind of a little antechamber there and there was some broken pottery and a skeleton. Mm-hmm. It was in there, like a grave robber had fallen in and died, whatever. And eventually, you know, there was you know, like bamboo placed in front of it so you could see through it, but you couldn't, you know, reach in. Sure. But the bamboo wasn't there. So the skeleton was just laying there. It was the day before Halloween. So Paul and I swiped that skeleton, took it and hid it in the bushes in JC, and then went back. Um, uh, one of us was a lead, I don't remember which one of us, but, you know, we're hanging out there and said, man. This is at nighttime, so it was pretty slow. And I, oh, Paul and I are going to take a deadhead. So we hop in the boat, head out there, jump out and grab the skeleton, set it in the seat, put the gun in its hand, put one of our hats on it, and then drove to Schweitzer Falls. Mm-hmm. And then when we see the boats come around backside of water, we go and hide behind the seat cushions mm-hmm. and just just let this you know, skeleton they were driving the boat just to kind of see what the other people would do and kind of give the you know the other skippers some something to talk about it in the backside of water mm-hmm. and we'd sit there for a boat or two and we'd wait till we hear the next boat coming behind us and then book it around backside of water and sit there and park mm-hmm. and we did that a couple of times um, and then when uh, when it was time to shut down the ride took it up to the dispatch office in the queue set it in the chair, put the headphones on it, and put a, I think mm-hmm. put a pencil on his hand or something. We left a note for the opening lead the next day saying, we left you present in the, in the dispatch office. Just be sure it gets back to the Indie queue. That reminds, <laughs> that reminds we, we of a moment we call our, our left-behind moment, where uh, I got an entire, entirely extra costume mm-hmm. and had set it up at the front of the boat, like laying over the front of it, and he just put the throttle slightly forward and then jumped off on one of the islands and just to let it drift very slowly in the dock. And we had put most of the boats away for the night. It was kind of, you know, the end of it. 
what he didn't take into account is that one of the maintenance guys came out and threw the track switches to pull a different boat out for moving around for maintenance. Mm-hmm. And so this boat drifts past the lights on Trader Sam and derails, mm-hmm. um, which was cost the person their job very, very quickly. But so the concept would have been that you, you know, you come back around and there's just all the clothes of the skipper laying around as it slowly makes its way to the dock and someone jumps on the boat and stops it uh-huh. would have been a perfectly fine joke if it wasn't for the timing <laughs> of the fact that they were throwing track switches. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was a mess. And, uh,